Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here this week looking at the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions and Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions uh, for the second week of February. So what is that? What are those dates? Give me those dates. What dates are we on? So the dates we are on is uh, February 7th for the Court of Appeals and the 10th for the Nebraska Supreme Court. Well, that's good. And, you know, we uh, the listeners have spoken um, and we got some feedback and they said, Hey, why are you starting with the Court of Appeals decisions and not starting with the Nebraska Supreme Court decisions? And uh, don't those have uh, greater precedential value? And you know what? They're right. Don't bury the lead on us. Just give us the good stuff. Give us the good stuff. So what we're going to do from now on, as opposed to chronologically of basically when I read them, because one comes out on Tuesday and one comes out on Friday, uh, we're going to start with the uh, hot off the presses stuff from the Nebraska Supreme Court. The hot gossip, as they say. The hot goss. Hot goss. We're going to start with some hot goss today, and we got a bunch of opinions to get to, so let's start with the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions for February 10th, 2023. What do we got, Carson? And we start out with a criminal appeal, uh, uh, State v. Madison. Uh, this is an appeal from uh, kind of an interesting uh, case, I guess, already procedurally. Um, the first conviction of this individual resulted from a plea uh, to uh, one count of attempted incest. And then the uh, second conviction was a jury conviction uh, relating to intentional child abuse re- resulting in death. Um, and the issue on appeal uh, is that uh, Madison is arguing that the uh, statute that he was convicted under the uh, jury conviction statutes of the intentional child abuse are unconstitutionally vague and that there was insufficient evidence to uh, support that conviction. And uh, I don't want to get too far into the facts on this because it was uh, kind of some difficult facts, but essentially what happened here was uh, there was um, a incestual relationship between a uh, father and his daughter, um, you know, resulted in, you know, some pretty traumatic experiences, uh, continues for a number of years. Uh, and eventually, uh, after the uh, final uh, incident between the uh, father and daughter, there is pretty shortly after there uh, a successful suicide attempt by uh, the daughter. Um, and that is, uh, the facts that lead to uh, the jury conviction for uh, the intentional child abuse. And so uh, the statute that's in question here, 28707, uh, says that a person commits child abuse if he or she knowingly, intentionally, or negligently causes or permits a minor child to be placed in a situation that endangers his or her life or physical and mental health. And then uh, the eight section, which is the resulting in death, uh, says that the resulting in death is committed knowingly and intentionally and results in the death of a child. So that's 287078. And so essentially the the issue that this case boils down to um, is what does uh, proximately causing the death stand for? Um, and uh, here the Supreme Court says that there is uh, really no dispute about uh, what results in the death of a child means. Um, and even though there are uh, factual cases like this case, uh, that, you know, border on that line or are difficult to uh, pin in there. The statute itself is not um, so vague uh, that a, a reasonable person would not understand what it means. Um, instead, the more difficult question, the Supreme Court says, and, and it seems to be the more difficult question is, st- is instead whether this uh, case um, defines uh, proximate cause and if the proximate cause uh, was present in this case. And so the interesting piece here 
is that this is very much a criminal matter, uh, but it very much gets into tort arguments because of proximate cause, of course, at common law is uh, a tort theory, um, but for causation, we all uh, dealt with that in first-year torts, and that's the exact same analysis that the court goes through here. So even though it's a criminal matter, the proximate cause analysis is a uh, tort or civil analysis, and so um, they go into a very in-depth discussion of that. I think that's great for practitioners, both on civil and criminal sides yeah, I was gonna say and, that. and find that uh, but for uh, Madison's act of child abuse um, ZM uh, would not have uh, committed suicide here and uh, you know say that there is no error in finding that that um, happened and essentially the Supreme Court says um, to uh, says to Madison that you know even though uh, you know you're saying that there might be a line here that there might be some interrupting factors it's it's uh, not plain air for you know a jury not to have have uh, found that you know there could have been this causal link there could have been this proximate cause that led uh, to this suicidal behavior uh, there also is some discussion of jury instructions on proximate cause which again relate both to the civil and the criminal side um, and there were two uh, good jury instructions one uh, that was proposed one that the court actually adopted um, which was the form jury instruction in Nebraska, which our Supreme Court tells us we give de- deference to the form jury instructions. Um, and here the the, diff- the difference was um, one uh, proposed having an instruction on intervening causes and the other one didn't. And so uh, we, we wrestle a little bit with those. Um, and then there was a couple of evidentiary pieces um, and a more uh, large, uh, I guess, discussion of uh, not being able to avoid evidence coming in uh, based on uh, having this plea. And so our Supreme Court says here, a defendant cannot negate the probative value of relevant evidence through a tactical decision to stipulate to an earlier plea. And so here I think there was probably a tactical decision to enter the plea uh, to attempted incest in order to avoid uh, having certain evidence come in in order to prove that element and therefore, you know, try to avoid uh, certain evidence that was going to lend itself towards the uh, child abuse uh, case. But either way, um, a very interesting uh, legal case and uh, a lot of uh, good law there, again, for both civil and criminal practitioners, which you don't always see in a criminal opinion. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like you might look at that initially and go, oh, state V, I'm a PI guy. I don't need to look at that, right? But if you have a proximate cause issue, you need to look at this. You absolutely do, yes. All right, anything else on that one? Nothing else on that one. All right, I had State v. Nelson, uh, it, a the criminal case out of Adams County. Let me double check, yeah, Adams County. And um, that was a speedy trial issue uh, regarding a fourth offense DUI, which is a felony. Uh, defendant filed a motion to suppress, and by the time they got to the hearing on the motion to suppress, the uh, transcript of the county court preliminary hearing wasn't done yet. Um, and was delivered to the defendant instead of the state. And the state moved to continue that, and it was granted by the first judge uh, in this matter. So the first judge granted the continuance, and this is important, from the bench said, uh, speedy trial is not told uh, during this continuance. So it's not told. So you're on warning, state, um, don't mess up. You gotta hurry up and get this done when you can. So they go through, the motion to suppress, it wasn't successful uh, at a later hearing, and then eventually the uh, speedy trial date runs from the defendant's perspective. Defendant files a motion for absolute discharge, 
and a second judge hears that motion, and the second judge says it was told um, during the first uh, motion to continue by the state. And so the Nebraska Supreme Court had to wrestle with that, and they said that the first judge's statement regarding the uh, motion to continue and how it wasn't going to be tolling speedy trial was an interlocutory statement, so it doesn't have any sort of weight, and that it wasn't a ripe issue at the time necessarily, um, so that that whatever statement that judge made did not um, move forward to the speedy trial determination. So speedy trial was not violated, and the time it takes to trial, they had six weeks or so to keep to go and get it done because uh, that time for the motion to continue from the state was not included. So they still had time. If it was the defendant's time and you, and you went by what the first judge said, the defendant was right and it, it should have been discharged. But um, they found this other way. And interestingly enough, and I didn't know this, whenever you have one judge and then another judge, it's not like a law that they follow what a previous judge said. It's kind of just policy. Um, so I guess policy is amendable and uh, not law of the case. So that's kind of the takeaway from that one. If you got a speedy trial issue, you got to take a look at this one. Okay. Interesting piece there. They said a lot of that on the record. I, I get where that's yeah. That's a confusing one, and well, and people having to reconcile that. And it was even a little more dicey because the state drafted the journal entry from that hearing and didn't include that, but it was on the record. Uh, oh, and the transcript. From the bench. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the uh, next case we have is Avis Rent-A-Car versus McDavid. Uh, this is an appeal from a summary judgment, was, which was um, granted uh, to the rental car company, um, and we have a reversal here. Uh, so, so the basic facts of this are uh, that uh, McDavid rented a car to go to Tennessee. Uh, McDavid was asleep at some point uh, during this journey, and uh, despite McDavid's um, telling uh, her sister not to drive. Uh, her sister does drive while she's asleep and has an accident. Uh, there are numerous injured parties. The court doesn't really get into if the uh, parties injured were uh, all within McDavid's vehicle or if it was also other parties. Um, but this uh, essentially results in a lawsuit in Tennessee uh, where uh, damages are presented and, and it must have been some initial proceedings. And then eventually uh, the rental car uh, company pays $40,000 to those parties and then says, hey, McDavid, I want reimbursed under our uh, rental agreement. Uh, McDavid says that uh, the rental car company can't show uh, that the indemnification provision of the rental agreement required her to reimburse uh, the rental car company for the amount it paid to the parties um, in this accident, essentially because um, she's saying that Avis has to show uh, that um, she was only legally obligated to pay the injured parties uh, if Avis was legally obligated to pay those parties. So essentially she has to say, or uh, Avis has to say, hey, you know, there were legally good claims uh, underlying here. We had to pay these claims and therefore you have to pay us. And uh, the rental car company, uh, McDavid argues, hadn't shown that um, at that point. Uh, here, um, the Supreme Court agrees with McDavid and says, hey, this rental car company had to uh, demonstrate at a minimum that it was going to be at least potentially liable. It hadn't even shown that. Um, so at least had to show that they were potentially liable. Um, and so the Supreme Court here reversed um, and granted summary judgment for McDavid. I will say the interesting piece here 
um, and practical piece is that if you want some in-depth discussion on indemnification provisions and contracts and some interesting contract discussion, there is um, some fairly lengthy uh, discussion on uh, indemnification at common law and then contracting over uh, common law and agreement between those parties in order to indemnify. And so if you have any uh, questions regarding that indemnification or if you have an indemnification contract you're dealing with, this could be a useful opinion for that. Excellent. Um, the next one here is NRA adoption of Faith F, a minor child, um, Gerald M and Stacy M appellants versus Kelly B Appley. This is an adoption kind of guardianship issue where a lower court ruled in the course of an adoption that um, there should be co-guardians as opposed to uh, an, an adoption and providing some permanency for the child. The child was seven years old and the child's parents died uh, through a tragedy. Uh, there was a murder-suicide uh, regarding the parents and this is involving one set of grandparents and then a step uh, grandparent who uh, divorced one of the grandparents. So there's kind of, a, you know, a best interest consideration regarding how much contact that uh, child had with uh, those uh, family members uh, prior to the incident that led to the adoption proceedings. And ultimately, the court found that, uh, you know, you can have some flexibility in the adoption statutes. And I think that's an interesting uh, takeaway from this is that, um, and the court says, reducing best interest to whether the first person to the courthouse with an adoption petition is good enough to carry out parental responsibilities for a child is inconsistent with the comprehensive and individualized consideration traditionally expected of trial courts in determining a child's best interest. So you got to look at everything. I can't just look at who's there first. And uh, there's uh, lots of factors, and there's, you know, 29 pages of factors here pretty much that the court is uh, considering when they're uh, making these kinds of best interest determinations. But ultimately, they found that co-guardianship between those uh, grandparents and the step-grandparent was consistent with the child's best interests, and that's what they affirmed on appeal. Perfect. So I think we're ready for the Court of Appeals opinions, right? Yep, that's it from Nebraska Supreme Court. Okay, so the first opinion uh, from the uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals, which is a published opinion, is Hughes v. Christensen. This is an appeal coming out of the District Court of Hall County. Um, It is uh, an appeal where uh, the appellant was uh, seeking physical custody and parenting time uh, with a non-biological child. Uh, The District Court had um, addressed this issue uh, several different times as far as um, within parenting plans and within uh, separate uh, court proceedings. Um, But in this case, the uh, district court had found that even though um, the appellant had assumed and acted in a parental role, uh, he had failed to prove that he had assumed all obligations um, in a a parental relationship. And um, essentially, even though there may have been a status of in loco parentes, uh, that uh, that had essentially disappeared by a failure to uh, minimize the child's exposure to harmful uh, parental conflict. And what this case kind of uh, at least demonstrated to me is that in these um, in loco parentes stat, uh, status cases, 
Uh, the facts matter a lot. It's very, very fact-intensive. Fact uh, when you're dealing with a non-biological child, uh, the relationship between the individual seeking the in loco parentis status and uh, the child that they are seeking to uh, be the parent of is incredibly important, and the facts surrounding that. Uh, here, uh, the more you get into this case, you see why uh, the district court probably uh, found that there wasn't that status. Uh, but again, uh, very fact-intensive uh, cases, very fact-intensive uh, legal issue, uh, but an interesting case if you, if you happen to have um, a, a case where you're trying to uh, either prove or disprove a in loco parentis status. Okay, I have uh, State v. Weichmann, also a published case. Uh, it's a criminal case, a speedy trial uh, issue where they go through uh, was there a continuance and is it told and all those things all the time. And I mean, that it's just, there's a lot of math in these speedy trial ones. Um, and the, lawyers are not good at math, which is why it becomes such a tough legal issue. And then, and then you got reading about math. Oh boy. It's like a story problem that uh, you don't really want to know the answer to and you don't get graded on except, you know, this is very important to these people's lives. But this is a defendant here. He was incarcerated. And as we learned earlier on a previous podcast, uh, you know, he, he sent the information to the county attorney and said, hey, you got to charge me on this. I'm being held. Um, clock's ticking. And so they uh, went through the analysis on when the speedy trials uh, began to run and whether there was 180 days uh, in order to bring him to trial on his theft conviction. And the, the important thing here, and I think this is a, a good summary of th some things as far as what is good cause, right? What do we have good cause for a continuance? Uh, what are some uh, reasons that the state may have for saying good cause? Well, there's a lot of them. There's a whole uh, page here on what good cause means, and including a statute. Uh, they found uh, good cause because there was unavailability of a courtroom for a jury trial, unavailability of uh, a witness as far as the state is concerned, uh, previous request by trial counsel to, you know, have a trial date set at a specific time that was found to be good cause. So there's some good discussion there about what good cause is, but otherwise it was affirmed on appeal and, uh, you know, speedy trial, they, they found it was not violated. So he had to go back and be tried. Okay. But a, a nice, interesting list of factors. If you ever want to look at those. Yeah. There's a good solid list of, of what's good cause. So if you're sitting there filing a motion to continue, or if you're a prosecutor and you want to know, Hey, do I have good cause to do this? Uh, you can cite this case. Well, not really, but you can cite the cases cited in this case and you can go ahead and, and, and argue that and hopefully, uh, you know, get the result you want. Perfect. Uh, next case we come to is Kiros versus uh, Lancaster County School District. Uh, this is a uh, lawsuit that came uh, from Kiros, essentially uh, saying that uh, her firing from LPS uh, was a retaliation um, and that that should be protected under the Nebraska Fair Employment Practice Act. Uh, the district court granted summary judgment in, in favor of Lincoln Public Schools. Uh, this is a very fact-intensive case. You know, there's almost 10 pages of facts here, uh, but essentially the uh, Court of Appeals finds and agrees with uh, Lincoln Public Schools that there was grounds uh, for the firing and that even though, you know, there were some of the behaviors here that, uh, you know, may have been appropriate by Kuros, there were other behaviors that were not appropriate, weren't allowable, and uh, therefore there were grounds for firing. Again, and they uh, highlight that piece an at-will employee, which Nebraska is an at-will employee state. And so when you have something like this, as long as they have cause, there's usually not too many issues. And so uh, the Court of Appeals affirmed. Wonderful. Let me turn my mic on. It was wonderful. I took a drink of, of Diet Coke. 
I appreciate you not slurping on the mic. That's that was that was very kind of you. As you know, I have an addiction, uh, and you're you very do. you're very uh, open about your yes, open about your diet coke addiction. <laughs> well, it'll be going away here. There once. are worse. Hey, there are worse vices. You know, Lynn will start here, and I'll start twitching uh, from being without my diet coke. But here we go. Um, this next one is Sean Reeves versus Brenda Reeves. It's a civil dissolution of marriage appeal. Uh, Thirteen year marriage. It was a second marriage for both parties. Um, the plaintiff here, uh, Mr. Reeves, he owned a corporation that had a, a bunch of stuff, uh, planes and a bunch of other ash assets. And it was a, he was the sole, um, member of that corporation. And the, uh, wife said, Hey, uh, that's just a, an alias for you. I, uh, those assets are marital assets and the d district court needs to divide those. Well, uh, the district court said that, yeah, those are marital assets and we need to divide them, uh, including some planes, uh, it was a horse divorce, uh, as we say, and there was uh, those are always interesting. And it also discussed sanctions, attorney's fees, expert fees, and the property division of the district court, um, finding that the uh, closely held corporation was an alias of the, of the husband uh, was affirmed on appeal. Okay. Uh, the next case that we come to is uh, Rouse. Hydraulic v, uh, Rakes v. Uh, Stephen E. Rouse. This is an appeal from the district court for Garfield County. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say a convoluted case. Uh, there were numerous parties involved. Uh, I think probably uh, what was a great deal of money, and so therefore it, re it resulted in um, some fairly uh, extensive litigation. Uh, the key dispute here was uh, essentially if... Um, 63.24 shares of stock in uh, Rouse Rakes were to be uh, distributed according to um, one of the uh, primary party's uh, trust after she had passed or if they had been uh, already uh, previously disposed of through um, numerous amendments to uh, the actual corporate holdings um, and, and uh and corporate uh, filing documents for uh, Rouse Rakes. Uh, there's extensive uh, discussion again of those facts and, um, you know, some of the pieces of, of the uh, agreements that were amended and had to be uh, worked around. And I guess, again, the analysis here uh, that I, I found um, important uh, was one, uh, dealing with ambiguity in, in uh, contracts and then in uh, modification here of corporate documents. Uh, there actually was quite a bit of testimony from the attorney who had uh, worked with the family to amend these corporate documents and what the intention of the parties were. And so fairly extensive uh, contract discussion. And then an interesting piece I thought at the end was that uh, the district court here had granted specific performance of this contract uh, to uh, essentially reissue these shares based on uh, the corporate agreements that had been made and not according to uh, this trust. And specific performance is kind of, uh, at least it seems like, a, a rare remedy in contract law. Usually we don't like to force people to uh, do things. And so uh, here we had a case where specific performance was really the only remedy. And so if you have a, a case that's similar terms to this and you are uh, trying to argue, hey, court, uh, you know, specific performance is uh, what needs done. You know, these are a set of facts where it fits and uh, could be useful uh, to uh, try to uh, get the court to agree with you that specific performance could be appropriate uh, based on your facts and your case. But that's all I have for that. All right. We got uh, Taylor and Taylor as trustees of TNT Living Trust versus uh, Michael Sides at all. 
this is uh, one of them fence line disputes and uh, quiet title action for that. Um, adverse possession, all kinds of discussion factually about where's the line and how long's it been there and who's open and notorious and exclusive and all those classic, <laughs> those classic elements of adverse possession. You know, these, these are, these, these can be very important, especially if you have a well or something that they're, you know. Well, and you know, the famous rancher saying good fences make good neighbors. Oh yeah. You know, good I, fences make good neighbors. At, at, even in the city, I would also agree with that. Uh, I think that's tall important. fences make good neighbors. <laughs> tall fences and uh, you know uh, barbecues make uh, good neighbors. Good neighbors, so, yes. good neighbors. So there we go. The trial court was affirmed. Uh, they they made a decision. I don't even uh, want to try and uh, parse out exactly what the decision was or where the line was, but um, the sides ended up winning uh, the uh, appellees there, and it was uh, affirmed on appeal. Wonderful. Uh, next case we come to is Zitterkoff v. Zitterkoff. This is um, a divorce appeal coming out of Scottsbluff County, a pro se appeal. Uh, Zitterkoff was arguing that uh, there was newly discovered evidence and um, that there uh, was perjury by his wife or fraud and so that that should invalidate the uh, divorce decree. The Court of Appeals uh, found that uh, they did not agree uh, that there was some weighing of facts, uh, especially by the district court, that they weren't going to reweigh that and that there uh, was not anything erroneous there. And then, um, which which can happen in pro se and, and can happen in, in non-pro se or represented cases, uh, there were uh, a number of errors that uh, either weren't preserved or were presented at the first time uh, or for the, fir- for the first time at oral argument. And so they uh, failed to address those, but that was affirmed. Just imagine being a pro se and going into the Nebraska Supreme, well, Nebraska Court of Appeals uh, chamber, like the the room. I can't uh, imagine. And, and, and saying like, oh, wait, I'm here. <laughs> Hello. Oral, oral argument. <laughs> you know, what, what you- are these lights? <laughs> Do you, I mean, Green, uh, yellow, red. <laughs> Here I, we go. I can't imagine a more intimidating experience uh, for a citizen. Uh, it has to be high. There. Yeah, very, very. Yeah. And you're up there and you're passionate about what you're arguing about. Absolutely. And then they, you know, they use all these technical jargon that you don't know. And that's a difficult thing. It, well, and honestly, I think it would be difficult on the on the justices, too. I mean, yeah. you, you have I mean, to yeah, you try to ask leeway. questions. That, yeah. And be yeah. and be respectful of, of the process and the fact that this person is. Uh, you know, a lay person coming into this, but at the same time, you still have to get to the root of the, the arguments and, and the heart of the case. So. Yeah, no, I, I, everybody does a great job. I just, I, I imagine, I, I guess, uh, I like that passion that they have and I, I don't envy that position to me. No, yeah. no, not at all. All right. So here we go. Ranky versus Perry Smith. It's a commercial, uh, property appeal. There was, uh, a purchase agreement for the uh, property, for the commercial property, and then it wasn't done in time. Uh, specific performance was sought, and there's some good discussion about specific performance. It was not ordered ultimately, uh, and that was affirmed on appeal, and the liquidated damages provision was was pretty much uh, not challenged by either party. So that was uh, part of the contract that was uh, ordered to one of the parties here. Um, but again, good specific performance discussion if you want to get into that. Uh, but ultimately, that was not successful here. Next case we have is State v. Lopez. This is an appeal from the District Court of Colfax County, a uh, criminal appeal based on um, three counts of intentional child abuse, uh, no bodily injury, and then one count of third-degree sexual assault. Uh, the interesting piece here is that the um, four counts were ordered to be uh, the uh, prison time was ordered to be um, set was sentenced 
consecutively, not concurrently, so not at the same time. Uh, but the uh, court did not say uh, what was happening with the post-release uh, supervision. So said that there would be 18 months of post-release supervision. Uh, in addition, the uh, court sentenced the, the defendant to um, uh, register on the uh, sex offender registry for life. Uh, on appeal, the uh, Court of Appeals uh, one clarified the post-release supervision issue and said, since the district court was silent on this and said only the 18 months, then that only means 18 months and the rest will run concurrently. So it's only 18 months of post-release supervision, not 18 months plus 18 months plus 18 months plus 18 months. And then in addition, the Court of Appeals uh, reversed and modified the uh, registration under the Sex Offender Registration Act because the uh, count that he had pled under was not a lifetime registrable offense. It was only a 15-year registrable offense. And so uh, reversed on those grounds, gave it 15 years and said uh, when the court is quiet on the uh, issue of uh, post-release supervision, uh, here, like here, they were here, it is deemed to be uh, concurrent. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting if you have one of those uh, coming up. This is uh, State v. Bailey. It's a case out of uh, the District Court of Adams County. And in this case... The defendant appealed an excessive sentence uh, regarding two separate cases. He pled no contest to uh, possession of methamphetamine and attempted assault of a confined person to class four felonies. And the district court sent, uh, sentenced him to consecutive um, time on both of those cases and gave him good time credit of 125 days on, on both of those. And, uh, basically giving him 250 days. So he appeals for the, uh, as an excessive sentence and the district court says, no, the sentence was not excessive. And oh yeah, there's some plain error here. Um, we shouldn't have given 125 days twice. We should have only given that once. And so they take away the 125 days of good time credit, um, that they had on the appeal. So he actually, uh, ended up getting more time by appealing, um, the excessive sentence. So that's, uh, an, you know, a, an outcome <laughs> uh, for them. That's the appeal there. And uh, it was ultimately affirmed, and then they modified to get rid of the good time credit. And then the good time credit issue was brought up by the uh, state on appeal, and the district court found plain error because obviously that wasn't preserved in the court below. Okay. Uh, the final case we come to is... Um, in the interest of Denia C., uh, this is an appeal from a uh, termination of parental rights uh, from the Juvenile Court of Douglas County. Uh, here, essentially, parent had not engaged with any services. The uh, Court of Appeals uh, stated that there had been no progress uh, on the case plan. Uh, the child had been placed out of um, home for 12 of the last 15 months, and it was not in the child's best interest uh, to uh, retain parental rights. And so the parental rights were terminated and the Court of Appeals affirmed. All right. That's it. That's another week. Law and order. It, that is. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is the old version of law and order. Yeah. Yeah, this is there's like old. There's like a thousand versions now of, of <laughs> law and order, but this is the original. This is a classic. This is a classic. I mean, it just gets to your soul. It, it, it does. And it is, it is known among all. It's a classic keyboard uh, song. Anyway, we're uh, Point Two Law Review uh, here for another week. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are, uh, this is brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. We've got uh, a 
offices in Minden, Kearney, and Holdridge. And again, go back to episode one for all the disclaimers. Um, I think that's it. Are we good? I think so. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. The next yeah. time we we uh, talk to you, yeah, it'll don't be post-Valentine's Day. Don't mess that up. Don't mess it up. <laughs> See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs>